Welcome to the GRF On The Go podcast. The subject matter experts at GRF CPAs and Advisors created this podcast to offer insights on current topics, as well as new ideas and best practices that your team can apply today. This podcast was originally presented as a live webinar. CPE information provided during the podcast is no longer valid, but if you're interested in watching the video version of this session or accessing the slide deck, visit our website at grfcpa.com forward slash events. Enjoy the episode and remember to subscribe for future content. All right, well, it looks like our uh, attendees are holding steady. So with that, I'll kick things off. Um, so yeah, thank you everybody for, for joining us today. I wanna welcome everyone participating in today's webinar to Winning the Financial Game, your playbook for SAS 145 and CECL or CECL implementation. So my name is Mac Lillard. I'm a senior manager with GRF in the Risk and Advisory Services Department, and I'm joined today by Susan Colliday, an audit partner, and John McIntosh, a senior manager at GRF, also in the audit department. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So a little bit about GRF CPAs and advisors. We are a full-service accounting and advisory firm based out of Bethesda, Maryland, serving clients all across the, the DMV, as well as nationally and internationally. Our firm serves a wide range of clients covering not-for-profits, for-profit organizations, publicly traded companies, schools, government contractors, and others. However, our particular niche is within the not-for-profit and INGO space. So we've been in operation for over 40 years now, starting as your traditional accounting firm, providing audit and tax services, as well as outsource accounting and bookkeeping services. And we've recently, in the last five to 10 years, spun up our accounting technology solutions, risk advisory services, and our other consulting services. Um, so if there's anything that's top of mind for you, whether it's related to your audit, your tax preparation, or anything that's top of mind for you in terms of risks, concerns, strategic initiatives that you've identified for your next 12, 36, 60 months, please feel free to reach out to us. We'd be more than happy to hop on a call, provide any kind of guidance, advice, next steps, or refer you to any of our partners that we work with that can, again, help you all in achieving your strategic objectives. And most importantly, as it relates to today, preparing yourself for SAS 145 and CECL implementation. So with that, I'm going to turn things over to John to kick us off with the SAS 145 section. Thank you very much, Mac. Good morning, everyone. My name is John McIntosh, and the first part of today's webinar will cover Statement of Auditing Standards uh, number 145. Um, and after that, Susan will get into the CECL part. I'll take us through the auditing section of SAS 145, and this section really is more geared to our auditors on the call and then Mac will walk in, walk us through the IT updates of SAS 145, which will be a little bit more geared to the auditees on the call and the, um, the new requirements that uh, will be required of them. And so for SAS 145, the full name of the standard is, update, is updating the entity and its environment and assessing the risk of material misstatement. And this standard supersedes SAS 122, which was titled Overall Objectives of the Independent Auditor and the conduct of an audit in accordance with generally accepted auditing standards. This uh, new sta uh, statement was issued by the AICPA's Auditing Standards Board back in October 2021, and it's effective for financial statement audits for the periods ending on or after 
December 15, 2023. So therefore, the effective date for the standard is very fast approaching, and it will be applicable to audits of fiscal years ending December 31st, 2023, and all those following. So what are the objectives of the new auditing standard SAS 145? Ultimately, this new standard is all about the auditor's risk assessment process. It addresses the auditor's responsibility to identify and assess the risks of material misstatement in the financial statements. And for all of our non-auditors, that is really the risk that the financial statements are not uh, accurately stated. SAS 145 enhances the requirements and the guidance on identifying and assessing the risk of material misstatement, particularly in the areas of understanding the entity's system of internal controls and assessing the control risk. It also provides guidance that addresses the economic, technological, and other regulatory aspects of the market and the environment in which oddities and the audit firms operate. It's important to note that SAS 145 does not fundamentally change the key concepts underpending audit risk, which is really a function of the risk of material misstatement and detection risk, but rather SAS 145 really just clarifies and enhances certain aspects of the identifi uh, identification and assessment of risks to better drive the risk assessments and then therefore to, over, uh, to enhance the overall quality of the audits. And as we begin to go through the various updates of the standard, many of these areas will sound very familiar to a lot of people. And that's really because this new standard brings together a lot of what was required or was considered best practices under the current standards and makes them requirements. So what are the reasons that the auditing standards board felt that this update was necessary in the first place? The first reason was due to deficiencies identified in the auditor's risk assessment process. This was a common issue identified by the practice monitoring programs in the United States, as well as worldwide. And in 2020, US peer reviews uh, identified that risk, risk assessments were the leading source of matters for further, uh, further consideration and they constituted 25% of all MFCs that year. The second reason for the update was the overall convergence with the International Auditing Standards, or the ISAs. Both the FASB and the Auditing Standards Board have been working towards convergence with the international standards for a number of years now, and SAS 145 was really used to achieve convergence when it comes to risk assessment standards. The third and final reason uh, for the standard was due to general modernization. When the current risk assessments under the old standards were written, many of today's modern technologies weren't really in existence yet. And so this standard kind of catches up on that. SAS 145 recognizes the increasing complexity of auditees and those, those entities, and also as well as those of the auditors. And it does this by highlighting audit methods and tools such as remote observation of assets using drones and video cameras, the use of data analytics, data analytics software, artificial intelligence, and visualization techniques uh, used to identify certain risks, and performing risk assessments on large volumes of data 
including analysis, recalculations, reperformance, and reconciliations. Now on this next slide, we'll take a look at some of the areas updated by the new auditing standard before getting into some of the specifics on each one of these individually. So the first big area is the revised requirements to evaluate the design of the internal controls. There are also new requirements to uh, separately assess inherent risk and control risk. And there's also some new requirements on the actual assessment of inherent risk and control risk. It offers a revised definition of the term significant risks, as well as revised definitions of several other areas. It gives new guidance on the scalability of your audits, and it gives a new guidance on maintaining professional skepticism throughout your audit. The standard also has a new standback requirement, and of course, it has revised requirements relating to auditor documentation records. And now to get into some more specific points, the first significant section of SAS 145 relates to the revised requirements to evaluate the design of certain controls within the control activities component and to determine whether such controls have been implemented. Like I said, many of these areas will sound very familiar to a lot of people, uh, but SAS 145 now clarifies that in order to really gain an understanding of the entity's internal controls, the auditor must evaluate certain aspects of each of the five components of what is now called a system of internal controls. Those five components being one, the control environment, two, the entity's own risk assessment process over their controls, three, the entity's process for monitoring the system of internal controls, four, the information system and communications process within the organization, and finally, five, the control activities themselves. The auditor must evaluate and document the, these components in order to form a proper risk assessment, which will then drive the nature, timing, and extent of further audit procedures throughout the engagement. As I mentioned, SAS 145 offers some slightly revised terminology. Uh, for example, what we've always called or, or the term internal control has now been changed to a system of internal controls. And this definition has been updated to reflect that it comprises the five interrelated components that were noted on the previous, on the previous slide. Additionally, the definition of controls has been updated to policies or procedures that an entity establishes to achieve the control objectives of management and those charged with governance. The standard now has a new requirement to separately assess inherent and control risk. Um, and while this requirement was not explicitly stated in the prior standards, it's something that a lot of auditors were already doing. And this was really driven um, in part by third-party vendors of auditing software tools that had taken the approach of a separate assessment of inherent and control risk. 
Uh, nevertheless, the requirement to separately assess inherent and control risk is now uh, baked into the auditing standard by SAS 145. And you can assess inherent control risk in a variety of different ways. The standard does not specify a particular means for doing so. Uh, for instance, you might use the traditional high, moderate, or low method, um, or, or you can now use a, a scale of, or say, 1 to 10 as a way to define risk levels. And the new standard repeatedly highlights this idea of um, rating risk on a spectrum. So I do suspect that in the future, we will see um, more assessments done on a 1 to 10 spectrum rather than a traditional low, high, or moderate scale. So there's also now some new requirements for the assessment of control risk specifically. Um, as has always been the case, if the auditor does not plan to test uh, internal controls for their operating effectiveness, SAS 145 requires that control risk be assessed at the maximum level, regardless of if you're using high, low, moderate, or a 1 to 10. Uh, in that situation, the new standard requires that the assessment of the risk of material misstatement be the same as the assessed inherent risk. So in other words, if control risk is at the maximum because controls were not tested, then RMM equals inherent risk. So some people might remember a few years back uh, that the third-party practice aides changed their risk model, whereby a low inherent risk and a high control risk equaled a moderate risk of material misstatement. This new standard now clarifies that that approach was not necessarily 100% um, accurate and is reverting back to how it was before, which was a low times high equals low approach, whereby RMM equals inherent risk. And from a practical standpoint, this will really allow for the auditor to have a more direct control over the outcome of the risk assessment process. Uh, however, many audit areas that were uh, tested at a moderate RMM over the past couple of years may go back to being considered low risk. All right, and with that, we have reached our first polling question. That question, so SAS 145 has a new requirement for the assessment of the risk of material misstatement or RMM to be the same as the assessment of inherent risk or IR. In your opinion, will this change be beneficial for audit efficiency? Your answers are yes, no, or unsure. All right, uh, the results are in here and it looks like 67% of people answered yes, that it would be beneficial to audit efficiency. And I, I certainly agree that it, it will be, um, it'll certainly give the auditors some more direct control over the outcome of their risk assessment process. Also under the new standard, uh, the Auditing Standards Board has a new definition for significant risks. The new definition uses the terms likelihood and magnitude in conjunction with inherent risk while not really referring to control risk. Uh, it no longer requires a determination of whether a financial statement risk is significant, but indicates that a identified risk material misstatement at the financial statement level um, may have impact on the assessment of significant risks at the assertion level as well. 
The prior significant risk definition really focused more on the response to the risk, not the risk itself. Um, the old guidance defined significant risk as a risk that needed special audit consideration. The new definition focuses more on the risk itself, which to be clear is the risk of material misstatement. And as I pre uh, previously mentioned, how the new standard often references risk on a spectrum, SAS 145 also uses this concept for determining if a risk is significant. Um, the standard notes that a significant risk is close to the upper end of the spectrum of inherent risk. So, so still some kind of room for judgment calls. The new standard also introduces the concept of scalability within the risk assessment. The concept of scalability recognizes that the size and complexity of organizations don't really necessarily correlate. For example, smaller entities tend to be less complex, but not all that's not always true. And large entities tend to be more complex, but again, that's not always true. So SAS 145 recommends that the auditor consider uh, various aspects of the organization, such as the accounting system, the industry, and the internal controls when assessing risk. And that the complexity, not the size of the entity, determines the risk and what responses should be applied. Furthermore, some entities may lack formal internal control policies. However, a system of internal controls can still be functional in some cases. Therefore, the auditor can vet these more informal controls um, with inquiries, observations, inspection of documents. Uh, so in other words, risk assessment works even in small entities with informal internal control policies. The new standard also offers some new guidance on maintaining professional skepticism. Uh, the standard contains several key provisions that are designed to enhance the um, and emphasize the auditor's professional skepticism. The provisions include the idea that uh, understanding the entity and its environment, including its reporting framework, is the foundation for professional skepticism. It also highlights the need for the auditor to maintain professional skepticism during the engagement team discussion phase. And this includes encouraging the audit team to avoid performing repetitive or predictable procedures year after year and to uh, incorporate an element of unpredictability. Moving on, SAS 145 also incorporates a new so-called standback requirement. And at the end of the risk assessment process, the auditor is now required to pause and evaluate the completeness of their identification of significant transactions and risks. And really the main point here is that the auditor should first focus on the significant classes of transactions and account balances, and then the remaining material amounts. Uh, for instance, say you chose cash and revenues as your significant areas, uh, but not fixed assets. In the standback phase, you would ask yourself if fixed assets really does require some additional attention. And if it does, then you would plan additional procedures on fixed assets in this example. All right, the final area that I will be covering is on the revised requirements for the auditor documentation under the standard. And of course, what kind of standard would it be if it didn't result in additional audit documentation? 
Uh, most notably, SAS 145 revises the audit documentation specifications to include the following new requirements. Documentation of the evaluation and design of the identified controls and determination of whether such controls have been implemented. The rationale for significant judgments made regarding the identified assessed risk material misstatements. And of course, the auditor should document the steps they took with regards to all the new requirements and guidelines that we've covered so far today. And what is the uh, criteria for determining whether the risk assessment process documentation is appropriate? And as in the past, that is whether an experienced auditor having no previous involvement with the audit understands the nature, timing, and extent of the risk assessment procedures. So document your rationale for your risk assessment work, as well as your conclusions. And this really brings us to the end of the risk assessment section of SAS 145. Next, we'll be going into another polling question, and then Mac will take it back to go over the IT side of the new standard. All right, thank you, John. And yeah, as John mentioned, we're going to go ahead and launch into our second polling question. So does SAS 145 require a specific information technology framework to be followed? And this is a little bit of a pulse check. Uh, just kind of want to see what everyone thinks before we go ahead and launch into the other section. I will be covering that on the next few slides. If you're unsure, don't feel bad about that. I would imagine that's probably why some people are here today, um, but we definitely are going to cover that in the next section. All right, kind of got responses across the board. Some yes, some no, some some unsure. Um, so that that makes me feel better about the material I'm about to cover. Because um, as you'll see in this, it actually doesn't require a specific framework. Um, but let, with that, let's go ahead and jump into the next section. Um, and I think this really builds on a lot of what John just covered. You know, really focusing on the the value of a detailed and comprehensive risk assessment. That is. Part of the reason that the information technology environment is now playing such a large role in the overall audit process. It used to be thought of as something that wasn't integral to the financial statement audit process. It's not related to financial statements. It's not related to accounting or finance controls, but it is equally as important now. And again, SAS 145 is just one step in the right direction to making sure that us as auditors are paying more attention and really evaluating those controls to minimize risk and make sure that the overall IT environment actually supports the accounting and finance function. So I'm not sure if we've mentioned this already, but participants will be receiving a copy of the slide deck as well as I believe a recording of this. So I embedded a little reference in here to the specific guidance over SAS 145, as well as the pages that cover uh, the IT component of this. And one thing you'll notice if you actually take the time to go in and read through this is that it is pretty vague in terms of the actual specific requirements. Um, so today is I wanted to cover sort of what we as auditors at GRF feel that the most appropriate components of the IT environment are to the audit process and just help everybody hopefully prepare a little bit and feel a little bit more comfortable going into their next audit cycle. So as I mentioned, the guidance does not require a particular framework, but it does reference COSO 2013, the Integrated Control Framework. Um, so for anybody that's familiar with that old acronym CRIME, which I feel is a, a little bit oxymoronic, just given you're talking about controls and you're referencing a CRIME acronym. Um, but again, that does that is sort of the prescribed framework to consider when evaluating your own IT environment. So that goes into the control environment, 
looking at your critical systems and how the accounting and financial platforms integrate with one another and communicate, whether that's through manual downloads and imports into the system, or if that's through automated integrations to transfer data and information in real time. Also looking at the risk assessment component of your control environment, how your organization manages, monitors, and responds to risks related to accounting and finance, as well as to information technology and cybersecurity throughout the year. Then you jump into information and communication. How is this communicated across the organization? And we're going to talk a little bit about that in the subsequent slides, but not only communicating these risks to your employees and the individuals who are using the critical systems, accessing your sensitive data and information on a day-to-day -day basis, but also how you're communicating these risks from IT to management, and then from management up to the board of directors and any of the applicable stakeholders. Then we jump into the monitoring activities. Again, what are you doing throughout the year to monitor risks related to accounting, finance, and IT? How are you monitoring the risks related to um, your third-party providers, to your own cybersecurity controls, and those critical systems that you've identified? And then lastly, E, the existing control activities. So what specific IT general controls do you currently have in place? Who's responsible for administering those controls? So again, as we mentioned, auditors are going to be placing an increased emphasis on the IT environment as part of the external audit process because of the associated risk of the IT environment. I feel like everyone's probably becoming numb at this point to all of the different breaches, hacks, and things that you're seeing in the news, you know, whether it's the Colonial Pipeline, whether it's MGM who just got breached, um, I think, a couple weeks ago. This is the second time in, in five years. Um, and again, you know, they're they're a billion dollar resort chain. So if they can get hacked, they have all this money in their budget to allocate to cybersecurity. It's it's really possible for anybody to get hacked these days. Um, so just making sure that, again, you have the appropriate controls in place. And one other thing I wanted to touch on just, you know, in terms of the importance of documenting the, the controls around your IT environment is there's all sorts of different um, legislation coming out about this. I think Virginia actually just um, released its own back at the beginning of in January. There's also something called the Ohio Data Protection Act. And what this actually stipulates is that reasonable security in today's cybersecurity environment is following a specific cybersecurity framework. And what this will actually do by uh, identifying a framework and following along with that and being able to document and justify or articulate your compliance with that control framework is that in the event that a breach does happen, reasonable security or compliance with the framework is actually able to reduce the overall liability associated with a breach, help you um, actually file insurance claims and get compensated or recoup any of your funds associated with that. And as I mentioned, the, the Pentagon has been breached, MGM, these massive organizations. So I'm sure people have heard the, the saying, it's not a matter of if, but when you get hacked. Some of these legislations are now really helping to, to protect organizations and consumers in the worst case event of a breach. So being compliant with the framework, having identified one and benchmark yourself against it is really valuable, not only for just beefing up your own cybersecurity posture, but for actually reducing the liability associated with the potential breach. So what I'm sure everyone is most interested in is how this is going to affect the audit process, kind of what we need to do to prepare. Um, so I like to reference normal audit procedures that everyone's used to to kind of help illustrate what this is going to mean. So 
As part of the audit process, auditors evaluate the design and the execution of specific controls. So similar to the review of an accounting manual or your internal control memos to document the design of your controls, we as auditors are also going to be reviewing the supporting policies surrounding the IT environment. So looking at the defined policies over IT general controls like access rights, cybersecurity management, cybersecurity training, disaster recovery, backup storage retention. I'll go through these in a little bit more detail, um, but those are just some of the modules that we're typically looking for. Also documenting any of the risks or controls related to your third-party provider uh, is ex extremely important. You know, there used to be this kind of mentality that you were able to just rely on your third-party provider, your managed service provider, or your outside IT consultant to administer those controls. This is no longer acceptable. Organizations need to have formally documented policies and procedures that reflect not only what their third-party providers are doing on their behalf, but what you're doing internally as an organization to manage your IT and cybersecurity risks. So once we've gone ahead and reviewed the policies, procedures, reviewed that design of the controls, there may actually be detailed testing of information technology controls. So similar to how we as auditors would test your cash disbursements process, selecting a transaction, requesting the procurement documentation, the payment information, invoices from, from start to finish of the process, we'll be doing similar procedures over the IT environment. So for an example, in, a, in order to test user access rights, we might actually request the onboarding policy for a specific employee within accounting to document what systems they need to have access to and what the appropriate user permissions they should have in order to complete their day-to-day -day job function. We would then cross-reference that to the actual user access listing within the accounting system or the financial platforms to make sure that those are in alignment with one another. We might also request risk assessments at the enterprise-wide level, making sure that the risks identified within IT and cybersecurity also align with the risks to human resources or to finance and accounting or to legal. Make sure that these, this risk information is being communicated across the organization and tied into the overall risk assessment and the strategic objectives. We might also look at specific cybersecurity risk assessments that have been performed specific to the IT environment or maybe even to a third-party provider requesting the due diligence prior to contracting with them, um, requesting any kind of ongoing evaluation if they are a critical vendor um, that in accordance with your third-party risk management policy, you would be performing any kind of ongoing monitoring, reviewing of um, service level agreements, of SOC reports, PCI compliance, whatever it might be. So these are just some examples of some uh, potential tests and uh, procedures that we're going to be performing as part of the new audit process. So how to prepare. Um, actually, if we if we wouldn't mind jumping back to that last slide, Nathan. Um, so how to prepare for, for the audit process. We just outlined kind of the, the cybersecurity pathway here. So understanding what your baseline is, what your in-house resources are uh, versus what you're leveraging an outside party or a managed service provider for, your physical versus your hosted versus your cloud-based solutions. Again, each one of these are going to kind of pose a different level of risk. Physical or on-premise equipment servers, they typically pose a higher level of risk just because of the controls around them uh, related to disaster recovery, backup storage retention, whereas hosted or cloud-based solutions typically come with less risk as they are typically hosted or supported by organizations whose primary uh, business objective is to provide those services. They have built-in redundancies. All A lot of their budget goes to having those types of controls in place. Um, so again, just making sure that you've assessed the appropriate level of risk based on your organization's infrastructure. 
knowing those third parties and what business processes they support. And then, like I mentioned, do you follow a framework and have you benchmarked yourself against it? Training is another big item, just to make sure that you're appropriately communicating this across the organization. End users are ultimately the weakest link as a result of all of the phishing scams that are going out there, social engineering. That is the primary way that hackers or perpetrators get access to the IT environment is through somebody clicking on a, on a malicious link or going to the wrong website. So making sure that you're training your employees at the onboarding process over the critical systems, phishing best practices, and then doing that on an ongoing basis. If possible, doing ongoing phishing simulations administered by your IT department or your managed service provider are always really beneficial. One of the highest value controls that you can have in place and are relatively affordable. Again, there's lots of lots of organizations, software providers that can do this for a very low cost per user. And then I really wanted to hone in on the formalized policies procedures. There are a lot of different frameworks out there from the COSO integrated control framework to NIST cybersecurity standards to CIS to ISO to PCI. There is not a framework I've come across that doesn't specifically mention formalized policies and procedures over the IT general controls. So again, our initial step as auditors is to review those policies, procedures. If we can't understand how a control is designed, it's not possible for us to test it. And that could result in some pretty significant audit findings should we not be able to, uh, or should somebody not be able to articulate the controls in place. Um, so these are the policies, procedures here that we typically see within an information security policy or um, in, in separate policies, uh, focusing on access controls, acceptable use. Acceptable use is one that most organizations already have in place through their employee handbook, outlining the employee's responsibilities. And then these other modules get into more detailed areas that IT typically oversees. Um, and that's the gap that we're seeing a lot with our clients is that they have the acceptable use for employees or maybe even some individuals within finance, but they haven't formalized the policies, procedures for the IT general controls overseen by the IT department. And that's the one gap that we're really emphasizing to our clients that they try to uh, try to close this year. So if we jump into the next slide, just wanted to talk a little bit more again about communicating these, these IT issues and what SAS 145 means to the board of directors. The board ultimately is responsible for oversight. So if they don't have the appropriate risk information related to the IT environment. It's, it's very difficult for them to provide proper oversight um, of IT-related risks. So educating the board, providing them information like we're going through today, just giving them a high-level overview of SAS 145, what it means, what some potential auditor comments might be, and then giving them a high-level overview of the IT environment. And IT can be a, a very technical area, so it's really important to kind of break that down into, into simpler terms. Um, try to avoid using technical jargon, try to focus on the top risk to the organization. And this, this isn't meant to be, you know, something that's super rigorous or takes a lot of time or effort. You can leverage existing meetings, whether it's a board, a full board meeting, whether it's the finance and audit committee, or maybe depending on your organization structure, maybe you actually have a committee that's specifically designed to, to uh, follow up on information technology or cybersecurity risk. So leverage one of those existing meetings, get IT and cybersecurity on the docket and make sure that it's being regularly discussed to make sure that everyone's up to date on the current status of initiatives, system implementations, risk items. Um, and again, make sure that this is being captured in the minutes so that anybody who's not aware can go back and reference that and again, track your organization's progress throughout the year. 
I mentioned avoid getting too granular and you're probably wondering sort of why this little dashboard up here with all the A, B's, C's and D's is there. This is just one example of tools you can use. This is um, something that GRF provides our clients, which is just called a cybersecurity scorecard. You can see within this graphic, it's very easy to understand. Most people know how to read a report card. A's are good, F's are bad, everywhere in between. There, there's room for improvement. Uh, but the nice thing about this is that this is a really good board reporting tool to just show people who might not have a super technical IT background exactly how the organization is doing. Then the other nice thing is that if you click on any one of these, if this were an interactive link, you can actually drill down into the specific vulnerabilities that are identified. So people who do have a, a IT background can really dive into the specific test that was performed and how this doesn't conform with the specific framework that you might be benchmarking yourself or against just best practices. So tools like this are very, very affordable. They're actually probably being run on you by your cyber insurance provider. So it might be easy to just ask them for a copy of the assessment. Uh, but again, these are really useful board reporting tools. And then also just useful for managing your cybersecurity risk on an ongoing basis. And then also make sure that if you are doing any sort of detailed IT or cybersecurity risk assessment, that these reports are getting communicated up to the board. A lot of times what we see is that IT might undergo an audit or an assessment, and maybe it's communicated to the CFO or the director of operations, but it doesn't. that information doesn't make its way up to the board of directors. Any of these internal assessments, similar to your audit or any internal audits that you're performing, should be reported up to the board to make sure that, again, they're in the know on any critical risks or issues that are facing the organization. But with that, I will turn things over to Susan to cover CISL implementation. Great. Thank you. Hey, Susan Colliday here. I'm an audit partner at GRF. Happy to be here to talk to you about CISL. So current expected credit losses is what CECL stands for. And we're talking about ASC topic 326. There's a new accounting standard that's going to be implemented for first for the calendar year ends uh, for 2023. Um, the implementation date for this new standard was January 1, 2023. So we should already have been thinking about this, but I think um, a lot of people will probably wait till their audits to think about it. But we're hoping to get in front of that and, and get to thinking about it before the audit. So current expected credit losses or CECL isn't just for banks and for-profit companies. Nonprofits are also included in the standard. Um, and in particular, um, you know, it doesn't apply to contributions. So nonprofits with contributions, you don't need to worry about it for those revenue streams. But if you have any exchange transactions or contracts with customers, um, receivables related to those revenue streams or any programmatic loans or notes receivable, um, the CECL will apply to those types of assets. And we'll get into what's in and out of scope in, in another slide, but just kind of a brief update there. Um, under the old standard for the allowance for doubtful accounts, that old kind of standard was a, more of a look back or an incurred loss method. Um, and, you know, the new standard is more of a a look forward or current method. So it, that's why they're calling it current expected credit losses. So at the origination of an asset or when you first record the asset, you are supposed to record uh, an allowance for credit losses or ACL. And it's based on historical information, but also current economic conditions and future projected conditions of your industry. You can advance the slide, Nathan. Awesome, thank you. So here we go, what's in scope? Um, so in CECL scope, 
you'll have accounts receivable related to exchange transactions under topic 606, notes or loans receivable with unrelated entities. Interestingly, there's also um, off balance sheet credit exposure, such as guarantees, commitments, or letter letters of credit. In other words, where it's assets that you haven't recorded on your balance sheet, but you're disclosing in your financial statements where there's the potential that you could receive cash in the future. Those would also be in scope. Um, and also assets related to financing leases held by the lessor and any other financial asset not scoped out where the organization has the right to receive cash. So that's the catch-all uh, for what's in scope. So we can slide to the next one and talk about what's out of scope. So um, investments that are covered under topic 820 are out of scope. Participant loans receivable that are reported by a defined contribution plan are out of scope. And I think that you know makes a lot of sense because contributions are scoped out. Um, as, as we'll see here in the next bullet, contributions receivable under topic 958 are not in the scope of CECL. Intercompany notes, so amounts due to from related entities are out of scope. Um, derivatives and hedging instruments are out of scope. That's covered under topic 815. Um, and receivables related to operating leases held by the lessor are also out of scope. Um, so those are what's in and out of scope um, of the standard. So what do you do on the implementation date? So on January 1, your day one, what do you need to do? First of all, determine which financial statement lines or disclosures are in scope and are going to be required to have an allowance for credit losses or ACL. Um, create the account in your chart of accounts. I mean, kind of sounds like a silly thing, but it's a step you'd need to do. Um, and this new account will be used instead of the allowance for doubtful accounts. The allowance for doubtful accounts is old terminology. We're going to now start calling this an ACL or allowance for credit losses. So then you're going to calculate the ACL as of January 1, which is your implementation date, and use the guidance in the accounting standard. You know, that accounting standard for this, you can look it up on FASB's website. So you don't need to ask your auditor for the information. You can go out there on the website on FASB.org and look up the accounting standard and get the information yourself. Your auditors are definitely here to help you if you have, if you have questions about the guidance. So um, feel free to reach out to us. Anyway, so then um, you're going to recognize a cumulative effective adjustment for the ACL in your net assets as of January 1. So it's a beginning balance adjustment um, as of January 1. So net assets and the allowance for credit losses will be affected on January 1. If the ACL is not material, then I'd suggest you contact your auditors and have a discussion about whether or not you actually have to report it. Uh, you still would need to calculate it and show your auditors the analysis that you went through um, so they can either agree with you that it's immaterial or, um, you know, push you to go ahead and record it. And later on in the slides, we'll talk about the, the fact that there's really no threshold for uh, not recording the ACL. But anyways, that's still a conversation, I think, because there's a lot of judgment involved here. And I think it's good to collaborate with your auditors over this before you get to audit time. If there was an allowance for doubtful accounts before you adopted CECL, the um, cumulative effect adjustment will just be the difference between your balance and your allowance for doubtful accounts and your balance in your ECL that you calculated. So your cumulative effect adjustment might be um, just 
the difference between the two, or it might be the full ACL if you didn't have an allowance before. Okay, we can slide on to the next one. So what are the components of the ACL? So there's three elements to the ACL. Um, the first one is historical loss experience. Uh, the next one is current conditions. And then the third one is a forecast of future conditions. So basically you're looking in your crystal ball and making some educated guesses on what's gonna happen in the future. Um, all nonprofits will have to have an expected credit loss allowance. Um, and you're gonna need to record that rather than using an incurred loss methodology, use, it, use the expected credit loss methodology. So there's an, a new way to look at this now. Um, so, and you need to record the ACL when the asset is first recorded. So on origination of the asset. Um, and I see there's, is there a question in the chat? I'm gonna hold off on answering that. Um, so what fall, okay, Chris, what falls under exchange transactions? So exchange transactions are co uh, contracts with customers. So anything that is not a contribution. So when you have, um, a customer gives you money and you give them something in return. There's a two-way street there. That's an exchange transaction, and that would be covered under Topic 606 for revenue recognition. That's that's um, hopefully answers that question real quick. Um, so back on the components of the ACL, you've got historical loss experience, and I think a lot of a lot of people are going to be looking for five to ten years worth of historical loss experience to be accumulated and and reviewed, um, in order to then determine you know what your your historical loss experience was. Um, documenting that review of prior year data would be a good idea, so your auditors can see what your thought processes are there. And then also analyzing the current conditions related to your customers, um, looking at not only quantitative factors related to current conditions, but qualitative factors. You know, what's happening in, in your, your customer's industry, for example? Is there, is there something happening in the industry that's gonna cause your customers to have less of an ability to pay you in the future? Um, so that's the kind of thing that you would need to be documenting in your review of current conditions. And related to future conditions, it would be a good idea to use a reasonable and supportable forecast period. You don't want to look at something out, you know, 10 years, it's going to be hard to forecast out that far. So something reasonable, maybe maybe three years out or tops five years out um, to, to kind of figure out what's, what's going to be happening in your customer's industry in the next couple of years. And then that would also inform your um, analysis of future conditions. Okay, so we have a polling question. All right, so this is our third and final polling question. So what is included in the scope of the new CECL standard? Please take a moment now to answer. All right. Nice job, guys. You got it right. Accounts receivable under 606 are scoped in all those other ones are scoped out. So um, it's important to know what's scoped in and what's scoped out. So then you can go ahead and do your analysis.
All right, we're going to look into some potential ways to calculate the ACL. There's a, a lot of guidance in topic 326 um, and in the ASU about how to calculate the ACL. So um, if you want to look at some, some of these methods, you can get in there and do that. There's a lot of methods in there that relate to financial institutions. So there's bottom, bottom four in the list are really related to financial institutions. I'm not gonna get into those today. I'm gonna to really focus on the top two that I think most nonprofits will be dealing with, the loss rate aging method and the discounted cash flows model. The loss rate aging method will be good for your receivables that relate to exchange transactions or topic 606. And the discounted cash flows model will be good for your programmatic loans or notes receivable. Awesome. So under the loss rate aging method, we've got an example here um, with a couple of customers and various balances due um, and, and they're aged out in these aging buckets. So you can see how those payments work their way through and what the gross receivables are in this chart. And the ACL is, is going to be determined based on the three elements, um, the historical loss rates, the current conditions and the future conditions. So based on historical data over the last 10 years, the organization determined that the historical loss rates were, you know, 5%, 0.5%, 8%, 40%, and 80% in the different aging buckets. Um, and then they added an upward adjustment for current conditions because they determined the industry in which their customers operate is experiencing challenges. You know, so that's the kind of thing that you would document in a memo or a calculation that you're doing for your auditors to take a look at. And then they decided that the future conditions adjustment would be a, a, a downward adjustment because they're expecting the industry to bounce back in the next couple of years. You know, so those are the kinds of things that you would then accumulate and then come down to a, a total rate by uh, each aging bucket to determine your ACL. And you can go, you can do the math later, but um, the 3% on current, the 11%, the 43%, and the 83%, that's how those ACLs then get calculated. So now we're going to move on to the discounted cash flows model. And again, this one is going to be good to use for programmatic loans, notes receivable, and that kind of thing. And most nonprofit organizations don't operate like financial institutions with this. You know, so I'm I'm not going to look at a portfolio of loans, and I think for most programmatic loans, you probably want to look at each loan individually, um, because they're all going to have different characteristics. Um, in particular, this example just walks you through one loan um, that is has has an interest interest rate based on prime plus 0.25 percent, and you can see the contractual payments laid out here in the top chart, um, and the loan balance of 75,000. And one of the things you need to do in this model is adjust those contractual payments before you discount um, so that you're you're converting to what we're what we're calling expected cash flows. So in the bottom, the next chart in the middle there, I've I've put down three scenarios for payments. Um, and so we'll work through each of these three scenarios. The first one is prepayment. The next one is default. And the next one is recovery delay. So what happens if the customer prepays their loan? The um, expected payments are going to change a little bit. And so then you would adjust those expected payments like I've got in the example here. And then what happens in the case of default? You're not going to have a payment in potentially year five. 
uh, and then you know won't you won't get full payment of the whole loan balance. And then what if there's a, a delay in payment? So customer doesn't pay you in year four and year five, and then they do pay you in year six and year seven. How does that affect your ACL? And then once you've once you've got those payment scenarios laid out, um, you're going to then determine the expected payments in the next chart here on the bottom. So you can see how you take the first chart and then lay out the three scenarios and get the expected payments. So then on the next slide, we'll look at how to calculate the actual discount. So the discount rate is gonna be equal to the effective interest rate, which is your contractual borrowing rate adjusted for any fees or costs existing at origination. And you can see how that works its way through here. Um, and then and then the ACL is calculated for each of the three payment scenarios. And then you, what you have to do from there is figure out which one of these scenarios is most likely going to occur. And then that's the one that you'll record. So let's slide forward. So there's a couple of disclosure requirements under CECL. Um, the first one is you, you've got to disclose the credit risk inherent in a portfolio and how credit quality is monitored. Also talk about the methodology used to estimate the ACL, and then also disclose period over period changes in the estimation of the ACL. Um, these disclosure requirements are principles-based, so there's, there's no you know, exact way to do it, but there's a framework that, that GAP provides you with. Um, the accounting policy in the first footnote of the financial statements related to accounts receivable or programmatic loans would probably cover items A and B. And then you'll probably need to add a footnote disclosure with a chart that rolls forward the ACL. So if you have a footnote disclosure in your financial statements for the accounts receivable or the notes receivable, you're going to add an additional chart in that note to roll forward the ACL. So we can take a look at some policies on the next slide. I gave you some examples of policies for note one in your financial statements or note A or whatever. So we can slide forward there. There we go. I'm not gonna read through these because I'm starting to run out of time, but um, these are example policies and you'll get these slides. Just know that you'll need to adjust them to fit your circumstances. And then slide forward to the next one. That's the chart. So there's an example of the roll forward disclosure that you'll have to add to your financial statements. And then let's hit the last slide. Oh, I forgot about this one. Yes. Yeah, so if you're using discounted cash flows, there is another optional disclosure. So if, with discounted cash flows, if your ACL is changing just due to the passage of time um, and not due to additional losses, the, the change due to passage of time can be recorded as interest income, but if you do that, then you need to disclose it in your financial statements that you're, there's a portion that's included in interest income. So just be careful if you do choose that, that recording option that there's also a companion disclosure there. Okay, let's, let's close out because I want to leave time for questions. Um, so even if you've never recorded an allowance for downfall accounts before, your auditors are going to expect to see an allowance for credit losses on January 1 and on December 31. Um, so just make sure that you've, you know, done that analysis and then worked, worked with your auditors before the audit starts. You know, just, just please know that nonprofits cannot use the direct write-off method anymore. So if you were saying before that everything was 100% collectible, you're going to have a little bit more work to do to justify that with your auditors now um, under, under CISO implementation. So just know, you know, on, you've, your previous loss model was an incurred loss model, and now it's a current 
expected loss model or a look and a, and a look forward. So you, you've got a little bit more work there. Um, and then share your documentation with your auditors before the audit starts to avoid surprises or delays during the audit um, and, and hopefully no significant audit adjustments as well. So I think I'm done with my part. Um, and I don't know, Nathan, if we want to launch into some Q&A. It looks like there's a bunch of questions in the chat and we've got maybe two minutes. All right. Yeah, Susan, it does look like we do have some questions. Um, I think this first one is going to be directed towards you. Okay. Uh, yeah. Do the required disclosures for Cecil include a roll forward of the ACL? Yes. The required disclosures for Cecil include a roll forward of the ACL. There's a chart in the slides that gives you an example. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. And yeah, just for um, everybody's information, these are going to be posted online. So you'll see you'll have access to that chart afterwards. Um, would also recommend everybody take a look at the GRF on the go podcast where an audio recording is going to be posted. Check us out on LinkedIn. We're always putting out new information um, about emerging issues, risks, trends we're seeing. So yeah, get and feel or feel free to reach out to us directly. Our contact information is there. Got about one minute left. So I'll just address one more question. Again, if we if you all have any other questions about anything we covered here today, or just, again, any risks or emerging trends, issues that are top of mind for you and your organization, please feel free to reach out to us directly. Uh, but one of the, the questions here is, how does SAS 145 impact the client preparation for the audit? Um, so again, the first, one of the first things I would mention is just to make sure that you have those policies, procedures available to provide to your auditors during the planning process. That's going to be one of the first things they ask for. Um, I would also recommend identifying the appropriate skills, knowledge, and expertise within your organization or your third parties to properly address any of the questions or testing items that your auditors throw at you um, as this new standard is implemented. So making sure that you've identified somebody in finance and accounting that can speak a little bit to how user roles and permissions to the financial platforms are granted. Someone within IT as well who can talk a little bit more granularly about the IT general controls for backup, storage, retention, uh, incident response, disaster recovery, and then also just communicating this to your managed service provider or any outside consultants. Again, it's probably necessary to bring them in on certain conversations around some of the more granular technical aspects of IT, again, assuming that they do um, provide significant services to you or, or oversee any of the IT general controls area. So make sure those people are identified. It'll just make for a more fluid and easy process as you're addressing some of these, these newer testing areas. But with that, I think we are right at time. So I just wanted to thank everybody for joining us today. Really appreciate your time, taking time out of your busy days to be with us here. But with that, thank you everyone again for being here with us today. I really appreciate it. And thank you, Susan and John, for again, volunteering your time to uh, present a lot, of, a lot of really useful information about some upcoming standards. Thank you, Mac. Thank you, John. Thank you. Bye, guys. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the GRF on the Co podcast. Visit our website at grfcpa.com for more information about the services we provide, the industries we serve, or to request a quote.